Well, take your Bible this morning, turn to Joshua chapter 24. We're nearing the last end uh, month of our study of the book of Joshua. Uh, We find ourselves this morning in the farewell address portion of the book of Joshua, and that would be, uh, we've covered uh, chapter 23, and this farewell address then covers uh, the component of, of of all of chapter 24 as well, but as we continue to to work through this, the farewell address really comes in sections. And every time uh, we think about this particular portion, uh, it becomes critical uh, for us to realize the gravity of the circumstances that that Joshua now addresses the people. The land had now been divided. Uh, Many battles have taken place. The camaraderie amongst the people, knowing that there was still even much work to be done, All the challenges that would lead to garnering each of their tribes going in and taking the portions of land that God would give to them. And now Joshua, what he does in this last portion in the the verses that we're going to cover today is he really reflects on this reality. And last week we, we talked a little bit about leaving a legacy of godliness. Well, every time you have a sense of leaving a legacy, Joshua wanted to remind the people from start to finish that the journey of the conquest, as difficult as it was, as trusting as they had to be, it all began and ended with God. And the legacy that he wants to remind them of in the course of this particular journey, as, as this book is coming to an end, is the legacy of God's redemptive activity. Remember, the, the, again, we've been saying this all throughout the course of our study. The book of Joshua is not necessarily just about Joshua. The book of Joshua is about the legacy of God who takes his people and does things that no other God in the land could ever do. And he fights for his people. He interacts with his people on such a regular basis so that we would come to the conclusion, our God wants and desires to be involved in our lives. He has standards by which you and I must live our lives by. And when we deviate from God's plan, we find ourselves in trouble. He records this short section of history, some of which you'll find that he elaborates a little bit more on in other sections he glosses over. But he does these things primarily as he ends his life to remind them who they are, where they came from, and where God is taking them and the people of Israel. I want to read these first 13 verses as we uh, begin this morning, and then we'll come back and dive in to these various sections. Follow along with me, if you would, in Joshua 24, and then I will have a word of prayer uh, as we dive into this text. Here's what it says. It says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and he summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt. Uh, And I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. 
Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive branches that you did not plant. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we walk through this text this morning. Father in heaven, as we come to the farewell address of the book of Joshua, and we now are in a section where we are recalling all this redemptive activity for the life of your people. Lord, we pray that as the Spirit guides us Lord, that we would recognize our minds would be illuminated in such a way that we would appreciate the sense of awe in history in which Joshua was compelled and directed by God himself to to recall to the people so that they would be reminded of the kind of God that they serve. Lord, and that is our prayer this morning. As a body of believers who are coming and looking at your inspired word and this recalling of redemptive activity that we would leave this morning, not just satisfied knowing that we are saved and that we are safe, but that we serve a God who is powerful, a God who does things that no other God could ever do. You are the only God, the one who desires for us to worship and praise, the only God who sent his son, the only God who would allow his spirit to indwell us this morning so that we could see the significance of being adopted as children into the family of God, kingdom citizens under the King, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for what you're doing for us. Help us as we walk through this text this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Well, I'm gonna put up before you this morning, you notice in the very early portions, it says that Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to the area of Shechem. And it's always uh, interesting when you hear these phrases, these words and, and places that we recognize in the conquest. These were real locations. There was a geographic time stamp and, and, and topography that it, were, it was included in these areas. You can remember Shechem, at least in the book of Joshua, is not referenced, it's referenced by name at different times. The other portion of the time that we saw this particular place 
was back in Joshua chapter eight at a covenant renewal section where Joshua gathered all the people. And perhaps you can remember back that far at this point to realize that half of the congregation, certain tribes gathered on Mount Ebal, the other portions of those tribes gathered on Mount Gerizim, and this would be somewhat of a mental imagery that you could, in mind, that you could imagine in your mind's eye. And you can see in the very center, I don't know if you can see the, you can kind of faintly see the circle, but that is ancient Shechem. Shechem lie right between these two particular areas. And Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal provided a level of a, a geographic amphitheater in a way that the people would recite back and forth at the covenant renewal and now they had come back. They had come back to Shechem, a very remarkable historical place. Just recall just a few things that have, would have occurred at this place that would not have escaped the, the mind of the Israelite and those who were in the conquest uh, during this time. This was the unique place in Genesis chapter 12. Verses six to seven, you don't have to turn there, but notice this. And it says, and Abraham, and Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. And at the time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. This is the first time in Genesis chapter 12 that God had come to Abraham at Shechem and promised him a land only fitting at the end of the conquest that God circles the people, the children now of those people who died in the wilderness, brings them back to Shechem from the place where it all began in Genesis 12 of the, of the, of the people. You don't get a people of Israel without separating a group. And so in Genesis 12, he separates Abraham and he promised him through the Abrahamic covenant that this would be your land. And in a sense, he's saying to them, this is the place where it started, where God had promised you, where God initiated an activity, where God sustained it, where God drove out the people. Your ancestors, Joshua, he was saying to them, this is a special place where you're, you now understand the gravity of what is about to take place. This is the same place, by the way, where all of a sudden, as, as, as Jacob was inhabiting in his, in his tents where his daughter Dinah was raped, where a trickery took place by Simeon and Levi, one of the older two, to, to trap the Shechemites in a way that they would take their, uh, be able to intermarry with them. And, and you can go back and read in Genesis 34, no doubt, remind yourself that the Shechemites of this region would not have forgotten that these descendants, these Israelites were one who left them without any men because as they coaxed and tricked them into doing, uh, being circumcised and when they were in pain, they went in and slaughtered them all. I'm sure that all of these reflective memories, this was the place in the Old Testament in Genesis 37 where it talks about Jacob's sons tending their sheep and Joseph went out to find them and he comes to Shechem and he comes across a man and he says, do you know where my brothers are? And he says, they're in the land of Dothan. They were wandering people, a nomadic group in an area where God had set them apart. Joshua eight, he brought them back here again for a covenant confirmation during the conquest. 
The city itself, if you remember from Joshua chapter 20, was designated to the Kohathites. It was a Levitical city. It was a city of refuge, a place where a whole bunch of, of Levites would have been who would have been paying attention to the requirements of the Old Testament law. We'll get to the end of the book of Joshua in Joshua 24, verse 32, and you'll realize that they had been carrying with them the bones of Joseph, and guess where they buried them? Shechem. This was a place that had all kinds of memories. This was a place that Joshua was called to gather them, a place where they would have remembered Joshua 8, standing on either side saying, God, we will follow you, we will serve you. And Joshua brings them again at the end of his life and says, make sure you're doing this. Make sure you are thinking and acting in ways that would be pleasing to God because it is his legacy that you bear. It is his legacy that you are a testimony of. He called you out so that you could be an example to the nations that were around you. Why was this so significant? Because Israel lived, and theologians often use this terminology or this phrase, that Israel lived at this time period under what we would describe as a theocracy. Theos meaning God. And the ending part just meaning uh, God was ruling. That was the whole point. That's why it was astounding, by the way, during this time to watch God do what God did. For God to meet Joshua with a flaming sword and say, here's what you're going to do. To give him instructions at Jericho. God was leading the people and God was not just leading them, Joshua recalls. He was their king. You fast forward this in the life of the people of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 to 7, when the people gather and all of a sudden they say to, uh, they say to uh, Samuel, your days are now coming to a conclusion. And they say to Samuel, give us a king like the other nations have a king. And Samuel tore his clothes and he was distraught within himself because they had a king that they refused to follow. It was the king, the God of heaven, who had fought for them, who had brought them to the promised land, who had made provisions for them all along the way. He had made a covenant with this people, with their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to do what no human being could do, to, re to enact a plan of redemption that was, that was time-stamped from eternity past, from Genesis chapter three, when he says, all of a sudden you have this prototype of the gospel that one of the descendants of Seth would crush the head of the serpent. Well, guess what? God desires to reign. He will rule in the lives of men and in the earth. He has not stopped ruling and reigning for one moment, for one millisecond of any one of our lives. He is in control of all things, everywhere, all the time. Don't think for one minute that just because you turn on the news and everything seems disarray and all, all kinds of countries deal with all kinds of different despicable things that somehow God has just taken his hand off and said, well, I'm gonna leave them to themselves." 
No, God has a plan of redemption in which he has enacted from the times of old, before time began. And why did he do it? Because he desired to glorify himself above all so that we would look upon him and we would see him and we would say, now that is where glory and worship belongs. Our main point, if you are a note taker and you're taking notes on the back of the the, the bulletin this morning. Here's your main idea, that God's redemptive activity is evidence of God's redeeming grace. His, act, his redemptive activity is the evidence of God's redeeming grace. Do you notice this in Joshua 24? And we walk back through some of these verses together. He gathers them at Shechem. He calls all the leaders, but in this particular occasion, it, it says that they, not just the leaders, the, all the people, Joshua 2, and he said to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel. He wanted to make very plain and very clear in whose, in whose representation Joshua stood. This is, wasn't just the conjurings of an old leader who had lived his days, had fulfilled the conquest, had seen many great things so that they could all laugh together and say, oh, it was a great life. No, Joshua's point to the people was, hear the words of the God Almighty in whom you serve, in whose covenant he now faithfully fulfills. You will be left I will be gone and each of your tribes, each of your leaders, each of your households must remember the redemptive activity of the work of God himself. Well, one of the, what is one of the things that he wanted them to understand and remind themselves of? Well, he wanted them to remind themselves of their beginning. He says, thus says the Lord God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. Here's one thing that I would, I would say Joshua d- d- calls that God speaking through Joshua says, listen, here's what you must remember. Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses six, 10. Here's what God says. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love, but, but that the people, but that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to the fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You know what he's reminding them? This is a good reminder for us. We are no one. We don't deserve anything. We don't deserve to be called out. We don't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve to be, uh, uh, be lavished upon with the riches of God's glory and the Son, Jesus Christ. We are no one deserving of this kind of elevated, adopted status into the kingdom of, of heaven to be, to be known now as children of God. We don't deserve it. We are no one. He is the one who has done everything possible so that you and I could could fall onto his incredible loving grace and kindness and we couldn't even do that on our own. 
We, struggle, we would struggle because we're so sinful to the degree we wouldn't even choose him on our own. He loved us with a divine love and he was trying to help the people of Israel remember and recall the redemptive acts of God's sovereign love and commitment and faithfulness. Believer, he will never leave you or forsake you in your entirety of your life. No matter the circumstance, illness, cancer, struggles, disobedience, he will not leave you. He has faithfully promised to uphold you so that you can persevere until the end. He does this amazing work. Notice what he's calling them to remember. You are not a people worth looking upon, but the only reason I put my eyes upon you is because I wanted to demonstrate the very glories of God by taking the least significant, the most insignificant people and saying, who does this? Christian, he took you out of your insignificance, purposeless, worldly lifestyle, you and me, and he made you a child of God by the work of his son through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ so that he could be glorified in you. Don't forget that. That is your mission. Your, your, our mission together is to glorify the Father in heaven. This calling, this commitment, this purpose that we live with, this reflections that we have through the course of reading the scriptures reminds us that we are not a people worthy of being praised, but our God is a God who is fully worthy of being praised. There is something about our God that is nothing like you and I. You will find no one here on earth who is as loving as him, who is as gracious as him, who is as just as him. No one can act like this. He reminds them of their divine calling. Do you notice this in the text? He goes all the way back to Abraham uh, because God desired to make himself known through his people. He had a plan of the kingdom that Jesus would one day sit on a throne, but you can't get a kingdom unless you have a nation and you can't have a nation unless you have a people. And so God goes all the way back and says, you are that people in whom God set his gaze upon. He says, let me remind you of his love and where you were and who your fathers were. He says, Abraham was called when he lived beyond the Euphrates, and Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and notice this, and they served other gods. Sound reminiscent of your beginnings as a Christian? He didn't find you doing all these godly spiritual things and go, oh, I want them on my team. He found you, and he found me serving other gods, wallowing in our sin. Do you remember where he found you and when he found you and what you were doing and who you were influencing? And you had no thought of God at all to serve him and neither did I. And he picked us up and he called us 
out of our despair and out of our depravity and out of our sin. And, we, and he said, I'm gonna take you from serving these other gods and I'm gonna, I'm gonna allow you the privilege of serving the one true, genuine, almighty, all-wise God of heaven and he will never forsake you. Christians, we have this incredible privilege that God would set his gaze upon us. Don't you look at yourself in the mirror and often ask yourself the question, why would he want me? And then baffled because you can't really figure out why? The why is because God has chosen to set his gaze on insignificant, idol-worshiping people to glorify himself, to prove to the world that he can take what was broken and he can mend it in a way that no one else can and you can be a trophy of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is what we possess. He called them, not because Abraham was so much better, Notice it's so interesting in the text. He's, he's recalling this divine calling from Abraham. And then he says in verse three, then I took your father Abraham from beyond the Jordan and I led him. Notice the verbal activity. I, God, caused this to happen because they couldn't cause it for themselves. I led him through the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. And then I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau and I gave Esau the hill country, the country of Seir to possess, but Jacob, uh, his children went down to Egypt and I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt with what, what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Notice the, the sequence of people and of the calling. He found Abraham and his family idol worshiping in the land of Chaldea, which is Babylon. And he called them out of Babylon. And I'm still astounded with Abraham's faith. Even amongst his family, he had three brothers. And notice the calling. Even amongst his three, his three brothers, God called him. You think this is kind of a highlight of divine election, perhaps? Even amongst, who, who gets to choose? God gets to choose. God is the one who is all wise. God is the one who knew amongst the three brothers. And he said, I'm gonna choose Abraham. And he chose Abraham. And he said, go out from, your, go, go out from this land. His father died and he leaves the land and he wanders around Canaan. And while he's in Canaan, God promises him a son. And Abraham says, I have no heir. I mean, look at even the struggle to believe from Abraham. And he allows his handmaid to be able to bear a son, Ishmael. And we know what kind of trouble this caused over the years. God divinely orchestrated and elected Abraham. And then he set aside Isaac and then Jacob. Isn't this interesting that this calling and this divine election, he's saying even amongst Jacob and Esau, all of a sudden he chose one over against another. It's interesting in the reality that as we think about this, that God's people always tended to struggle with a sense of idolatrous worship. It's interesting that even as various components, when it says that he called Abraham out of his idolatry, and you fast forward in various components of Genesis 31, and you see all the way back to Laban and Jacob and Rachel, and Rachel had taken her father's gods and hid them under her, her saddle. 
And, and, and her father was upset and comes and finds her. Where's my gods? You wonder, you, you recognize that even in the midst of every stage of God's drawing people, he's drawing them out of their wickedness. He's pulling them from their worship of idolatry and other gods and saying, no, it's me. I love you. I care for you. You see this at the same portion in Genesis chapter 35. Jacob brings his entire household. It says in Genesis 35, so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us go, arise and go up to Bethel so that I may speak, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress. Notice this at the very end of this section. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the tabernacle tree that was near Shechem. And he reflects on this reality that foreign gods must be left and you can see where Joshua is going in our next sermon. He's calling them to a, to, to a line in the sand if you will recall the redemptive activity of God, you will then, and we will be confronted as he was confronting the people, choose. Idolatry has always been a struggle in the life of people, even in the lives of people who have been called by the graces of God. Which means if that's the case, you and I have to begin to start reflecting and saying, what are the kinds of things that we are worshiping? We're coming to the conclusion of the book of Joshua and I dare say that for all of us in, in different ways, there are things that we love at times that are more important than God. And he is calling us to remember God's redemptive activity and his love and gaze that has been set upon us so that we don't go astray and go back to the gods we once worshiped. We must follow him. It was Jacob who was chosen, not Esau. It's so interesting. You want to mark this and study it on your own, on your own later on. But Romans 9, verses 10 to 13, Paul picks up on, on this in, in his understanding of justification. And he says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, that though, though, though they were not yet born and had not done neither, uh, nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purposes of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. God divinely elects and chooses those in whom he has set his gaze upon. All kinds of theological terminology and all of a sudden all these different uh, flags are going up for many of you like, that's Calvinism! It is! Because Calvin would understand and, and realize that God alone was wise enough, gracious enough, powerful enough, filled with mercy enough to draw people, which is why this, this whole remarkable reality that God would set his gaze on people like us ought to astound you. 
Paul picks up on this in Ephesians chapter one when he says, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Paul says again in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned, from, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Believer, Appreciate this redemptive activity in your life. He came to save you, not so that you could then have the security of just the happy feeling of saying, I'm not going to hell. He saved you and allowed you freedom, not to do whatever you want to do. He gave you freedom to do whatever he wants you to do. And I recognize that in a country where we appreciate freedom and there is no uh, despairing element whatsoever thinking about 4th of July and the cost that it took for us as a country to be provided the freedoms that we appreciate today. But let's even pan out on an even bigger scale. The freedoms that you and I as believers possess, we would never appreciate or possess them unless God set his gaze on us so that we could be free, not to say, well, good, I'm free to do whatever I want. Paul says, you're not free to sin so that grace can abound. You are free to glorify him of your own accord, no longer chained to sin. Before you were a believer, you could do nothing but sin. And he knew it, and he still said, I'll take you. I will call you, I will choose you, because I love you. Brothers and sisters, there should never be a point where you come across the divine activity of God on your behalf and you somehow gloss over them with a sense where it's just normal to you now. Oh, I've been saved for a while. I remember being excited about that. No, Christian, have a deep-seated appreciation for the divine love and calling of God upon your life so that you take serious every moment, every thought, everything that you do, every choice that you have, every conflict that you have to experience, every, every moment of life, every job that you work. Everything is viewed in the lens of God's divine work so that he might glorify himself through you, it's remarkable, the history of God's calling. I love what Lewis Schaefer says in his systematic theology. He says this, no obligation rests upon God in the exercise of his grace. He may and does choose whom he will. He neither sees nor foresees any good in man which might form a basis of his blessing. He continues and says, whatever good is found in redeemed man is wrought in him by divine grace. There was nothing good in you. And this is so opposite to what the world is telling you. You're so good, the world tells you. In fact, your whole life's purpose should be to feel good about you. 
That is the opposite of what the Bible tells us about a divine calling. We have so many people today who feel great about being a sinner and have no need for salvation because they feel really great about doing really bad things. God finds us and his divine grace enables us to be able to see what we could no longer see. He continues and says, all of this God undertakes and accomplishes in sovereign grace. He elects, he calls, he inclines the heart, he redeems, he regenerates, he preserves, and he presents faultless before his glory. Those who are the objects of his sovereign grace. When we deserve his wrath, we get grace instead. How kind is he? This God who loves us to that, with that unending kind of love. He does it in such a way that is remarkable that John 15 in verse 16 and 17 makes this statement. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should, should abide so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The reality is, is we were stuck in our trespasses and sins like sheep going our own way. And he finds us. I love what, what Schaefer says. I don't have this bef uh, up for you, but listen to this. He says, even the first man, when unfallen and wholly free to choose, did not choose God. How much more is it certain that the fallen man will not of himself choose God? If Adam couldn't do it, neither would you which means that all of God's saving work began with him and will end with him. Your life and the legacy you leave of godliness will be shaped by your ability to reflect on the redemptive activity of God who called you and called you out of darkness and he chose you he provided salvation. I love these statements that he would draw us, like John chapter 12, verse 32, when he was saying to the disciples, and, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You didn't even come on your own accord. He had to draw you. That's how depraved and sinful you and I are. That salvation, all the way down to its beginning and its drawing and its application, everything belongs to him. But God does not choose to circumvent the mechanism of the will of man that, is, is, that he has created him with. He chooses to compel him by divine evidence and by a working of the spirit preparatory from God to draw all people. And John 6, says, no man comes to the father unless the spirit draws him. God doesn't force you robotically and in a way that he doesn't receive the glory. He uses your will and comes alongside, which in Calvinism is described as irresistible grace. Let me describe irresistible grace for you for a moment. It's like you, have, you, you think that your idea is this great idea. You're serving the, the world, the gods of the world, the foreign things and idolatry set up. And all of a sudden, God comes and he compels you. And you start saying like, Noah, 
I, I don't think this is such a good idea. And he one by one walks you through and helps your heart understand through the pages of scripture who you are, who he is, and what is the responsibility between the two of you. And his compelling is so remarkable that it becomes irresistible in a way that it doesn't, there is no other choice. And out of that irresistible grace, that irresistible drawing, he is so compelling to draw you that you go, there's nothing else. I've got to repent. Even he did that, that wasn't you. You wouldn't be there if he wouldn't have led you there. He gets all the glory from beginning to end. It is irresistible in the sense also that we ought to not underappreciate this kind of irresistible grace and the magnitude of which he has called us out of the depths of our sin. It's also a history of God's power, is it not? Looks like I better hurry. That's what it looks like. <laughs> Notice this in Joshua chapter 24, and especially in verses six. He said, then I brought out your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the sea. And they cried to the Lord and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and he made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt and you lived in the wilderness a long time. He's reflecting on not only God's calling, but his power to sustain the calling that he began. I mean, notice this work of God for a moment. You remember those short little glimpses that the people who were in Egypt cried out and wept to the Lord, save us, save us, save us. And he pulls Moses and he says, I'm gonna save them and I'm gonna use you. And then, you know, Moses is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Great saving idea, just not me. Many of us feel that way. God, thank you for saving me, but don't send me. See, being saved means you're willing to be sent wherever he calls you to go, no matter to do whatever he calls you to do, whatever that may be, whatever occupation you may find yourself, but is reflective of God's power. They stood on the brink of the Red Sea and saying, God, uh, saying to Moses, why did you bring us out here? And then he calls Moses and says, get into the Red Sea, part the Red Sea. And of course, I'm just glossing over this whole story. Could you imagine having been there? They get to the other side and the sea collapses and the people are standing along the side and they're watching bodies just drift along the, the sea. Rejoicing, saying, look at how our God fought for us. This is God's power. This is why Joshua brings it back. I will fight for you with the same kind of power from the moment you left Egypt and I rescued you there. I rescued you from, from Jericho, from I, from the Canaanites, from the Perizzites, and from any other people group. I rescued you because I am God and I can do all things. I love this, reflective of Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha, the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is our God. A God with the power to deliver his people from the Red Sea experience. I mean, you, you have to begin to wonder why Israel has yet to be annihilated as a people. So many nations have tried. 
Do you think that perhaps maybe it because God in his divine calling and election of his own people that he just might have a plan for them after all? To make a people, as the Old Testament prophets would say in Jeremiah, that he, it says, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Jeremiah recounts over and over again in Jeremiah 16, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 30 and 31. God is going to set up the kingdom of Israel and he will bring his people back to his land. And he will use whatever mechanism necessary to bring unbelieving, idolatrous Israel, serving other gods, even in the presence, to their knees, so that when he comes through the clouds, all Israel will be saved and complete all the Old Testament prophetic language to say that God will be all in all. It's a history of God's care. Do you notice this? He says, and he just glosses over it, and so I'll do a little bit of the same. And you were kind of a long time in the wilderness. <laughs> and? Like 40 years and? And you were disobedient, and you were, you were complainers, and, and Moses had to deal with all this. And you know what that says? God sustained them. I mean, here, here you have a passage, for example, like Deuteronomy 29, he says, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness and your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread and you have not drank strong drink, uh, wine or strong drink that you may know that I am the Lord your God. The wilderness experience was for them to recognize God's intentional care upon their lives. It was a training ground. It would help them in the next phase of the life of the people of Israel. It's a history of God's provision. You notice all throughout the rest of this, uh, he recounts these I gave statements and just, we, won't have, we don't have much time to spend there, but you can just notice it over and over again. I gave these people over to you. I gave these people over to you. And all throughout the latter part of this section, and he says, I delivered each one of them into your hands. Even when, even when Balak came among you and pulled Balaam and said, guess what? You, why don't you curse God's people? And God said, I won't let him curse the people I've blessed. I'll only let him bless you. I, I mean, I just would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for Balaam. Like every time he's like, all right, this time I'm going to do it. I'm going to curse him. And a blessing comes out. Like, what is wrong with me? Why can't I talk? Because God sovereignly controls even human speech. I think, you know, Balaam should have found that out when his donkey spoke to him. But he didn't. And he has later recollection all the way down to Revelations 2 when he's talking to the church at Pergamum and he, and he reflects on Balaam and says, but I have a few things against you. You have some who are hold, hold the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And he uses Balaam for years to come as an illustration of what not to do. And even in what not to do, he says, he's saying, I'm still committed to the faithfulness of Israel and to my people but don't go and practice despicable, evil things. He provides for them. 
He loves them in every way imaginable. And as he called us out of this darkness and into his glorious light, we must remember. And the legacy of God's activity, it's evidenced by his redeeming grace over and over and over. Read the Bible with a purpose of understanding that it is a God of grace that you're there to meet. It's a God of grace that, you're, that is going to meet you there, help you along the way, continue to work through perseverance so that he might be glorified. Don't give up, Christian. He who began a good work in you will complete it, not because you're so good, but because he's so good. And he is so good at displaying his own glory by the work of the Spirit who indwells believers. And I watch it all the time as a pastor in this congregation. Countless occasions over the past year or more where I just watch people being obedient to the things of God, sharing the gospel, caring for people, investing themselves, going to their workplace faithfully, sharing the gospel. Can I just tell you, don't stop displaying the redeeming activity of God and his grace to the people that are around you. It is your one single joy in this life to be a representative and ambassador of this king and this God who is fully powerful, who loves you with such a great love that he would call you out of darkness into a glorious light. Use your freedom to serve him. Use your freedom in such a way that God would be exalted. If you're here today and you've yet to place your faith in him, today is a great day to consider that. If there is a stirring in your life, guess what? God brought you here sovereignly to hear the gospel so that your heart would resonate with the divine call and love of God, not so that you could walk away saying, ah, maybe another day. Let today be that day so that you will find Jesus Christ. Humbly submit yourself. Believers, lay your stubborn will down at the foot of the cross of Christ. Live for him all of your days. Because as we come to next week, Joshua will call us to a very specific call to leave the things of the world behind us so that we can clearly conduct ourselves in a manner that will bring him glory. Let's pray. And as we pray, we're going to be taking the Lord's table this morning. And I want you, as we come down, as you consider some of these things, we're, I want you to take a moment to pray. Examine your own heart before you take of the elements of the Lord's table this morning. Uh, and God helps us to continue to shape our minds for the things that he's called us to do. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your calling in our lives Lord, that you would lead us to a repentance and faith that we could not lead ourselves to. Lord, we, we know what kind of people we are, a people who are desperately dependent on this all-powerful, incredibly caring God who constantly provides for our lives. And you do so because you are faithful to all your promises so that you would show yourselves glorious. Lord, I pray that as we take communion together, Lord, that our hearts 
would remember your redemptive work and appreciate the calling that you have given to us to salvation and the calling to be united as one body to love and to serve you, Lord. So help us do that. In your name we pray, amen.